Hey guys and welcome back to another exciting episode of Catch Ups in My Kitchen with me Georgia Simmons host of the podcast. This week we are joined by James Cabri, founder of two chocolate brands, Love Coco, a premium chocolate and Hip, the plant-based oat milk chocolate. I personally absolutely love Hip, it is hands down my favourite chocolate brand so I was really looking forward to speaking to James today. Also, as you may have gathered by the name, James is the great-great-grandson of John Cabri, the founder of the Cabri chocolate, which we all know and love today. I loved speaking to James about how his family have influenced his decision in building the two chocolate companies he is currently running. Both chocolate brands are going from strength to strength, and it was really interesting hearing all about it. I think you will love this episode from hearing about the Cadbury origin and history about why Cadbury started, as well as a journey that James is currently on with both Love Coco and Hip. So without further ado, let's get into the episode and as always, have a lovely, lovely rest of your day. James, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk all things Hip and Love Coco, but firstly, how are you? Yes, very well. London is sunny today, which is a bit of a surprise. So uh, It's so nice. It's beautiful. Do you mind giving me a quick elevator pitch? Who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah, I'm James Cabri. I'm the founder of Love Coco and Hip Chocolate. I set up Love Coco back about seven years ago. And the inspiration behind that was my great-great-grandfather. He set up cabbage chocolate. Back then, it used to be a little grocery shop. Eventually did chocolate bars. We'll go into that in a bit more detail in, in, in a bit. Um, and I'm also the founder of Hip Chocolate, which is our vegan oatmeal chocolate uh, brand, which we launched two years ago. Amazing. I can't believe it's been two years. I feel like I see Hip everywhere, and you guys have grown amazingly in just two years. But yeah, we'll get into all of that in more detail soon. Before we do, I have a quick fire round about all things food. So, sweet or savoury? Sweet. Pizza or pasta? It's a tricky one. Uh, Pizza. Go-to cuisine? Ooh, Japanese. Mm, Good one. Cook in or eat out? Definitely eat out. I don't like, you know, when you get stuff in, it's just you've still got to clean up, put it in the bin, and yeah, I prefer to be wined and dined and a few drinks along the way. Yeah, definitely. And favourite delivery? I don't get a huge amount of deliveries, but maybe on Saturdays when we get um, island poke. Uh, yeah. I do like a poke. It's quick as well. And sometimes, quick. yeah, it's always reliable as well. Um, and also it's kind of cold. So if it does kind of cool down on the way, you're fine. There's nothing worse than getting ordering something hot and it arrives kind of cold. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So I want to start off by talking about your childhood, your upbringing. What was life like in the Cabri household growing up? Um, it was like a normal family, really. I was um, my parents were both lawyers. Grew up in Birmingham and sort of lived a normal life, really. It was um, my great great grandfather. He set up Cadbury's. Um, so when he set that up, um, it was literally a very small business. It used to be a grocery shop, as I've sort of briefly mentioned. And then they started to do teas and coffees in the store. Um, eventually, they wanted to do hot chocolates. They heard. But people went over to Madrid, people in Madrid had started to drink um, these hot chocolate drinks and very different though. They weren't like a hot chocolate as we know and love today. It was very much uh, cocoa beans ground up with adding spices and adding hot water. Um, but I think the, the thing about it was 200 years ago, no one had ever experienced cocoa or many spices actually. Um, so they were combining this and people would walk in the store and you could smell it and it was like, well, what is this? This is, this is new, this is different. And um, Capri's, you know, 
did really well with this drink, um, but it was never going to be scalable. It was one store, um, and they wanted to you know create a bar which could be used for people traveling or at home and stuff like that. So they went um, and created you know they've got lots of help with uh, the best people in the world to you know in the UK especially to you know make a, a product and got scientists and stuff like that. So. They went from yeah having a bar which didn't taste very good at the time. People used to put all sorts of weird stuff in in their chocolate stuff like uh, brick dust apparently, which is wow yeah pretty grim. Potato starches was another big one to give it a bit of volume and color apparently. And Cadbury's like no, we really need to be pure and better than anything. And they managed to create this bar and it tasted good, but it's still quite bitter. And they're like oh we want to make it creamier. Um, so it's like well why don't we try and put in in, in milk? So they're one of the first people in in the world to put milk into their, their chocolate, wow. which is quite cool. So we're one of the first with our vegan brand Hip to put in uh, oat milk into our chocolate. So, but they did they, from that they sort of went from a you know, really small company to the biggest in the UK um, and you know huge success. Um, my family were always very well. They were back day very religious. They were Quakers, so they didn't believe in, in making wealth um, for, for for the family. Um, so rather than you know creating all this wealth in the family, which was quite a lot of time as well, they, they put it into different charities and trusts and stuff like that. Um, and you know it, that was always there. Uh, so when I was growing up, I always knew the story. Um, I was living in Birmingham, not too far away from the Cadbury factory. So I was always very very inspired by the, the story and how you know setting up a business two hundred years ago. I couldn't imagine setting up a business probably ten years ago. I think it's so much easier now with the internet and chat and whatever else it's, it's just so much easier whereas 200 years ago I, I just have no idea so I was always really really fascinated by this and I was really inspired by this and um, we used to have parties there when we were school kids so I would go to Aston Villa to watch to, to watch football and play football there or mm. go to the Cadbury factory which was uh, quite cool um, and then also school trips and stuff like that so I was just really just you know really fascinated by the whole story and um, yeah it was great definitely I mean it is a fascinating to be part of the family, I mean, it's one of the biggest brands in the UK. People come over to the UK and all they want is to have the Cadbury chocolate because it's just tastes so much better here and it's just one of the best chocolate brands in the world. So yeah, to have that in your family is amazing. And the fact they started off with hot chocolate is amazing because I think people might think they started off with a chocolate bar, but actually it was hot chocolate which led them to, to where they are. Yeah, no, it was literally the, the reason we buying the hot chocolate as well was they wanted to get people off alcohol. Uh, back in the day, everybody, in the, you know, most people lived in cities, they're quite uh, congested, they were a lot of smog, there a lot of pollution, and it, there, wasn't, there weren't very nice places to live. So, um, and yeah, people were making stuff, it was the era where people were making their own booze. So, there's lots of people drinking gin and homemade gin. And it sounds a crazy place at the time, and Cadbury's were, were you know, Quakers and they didn't believe in drinking alcohol, or, or at least in moderation. Um, so they brought this drink over to try and get people off um, alcohol was the, the real reason behind them, them setting up that mm. and it was then just because it was so popular in the store that they went on to make chocolate bars which was amazing um, yeah, really quite... really cool and I, I guess the fact that it's called dairy milk makes sense because it was the first bar that had dairy milk in the bar so I guess that's where the name came from yeah no absolutely there was at the time there's people like Lint uh, who you know everybody knows and Nestle's and stuff like that they're all families who were competing at the same time trying to create this product and they were all really trying to work out how they how they could do it really and it was through probably 50 years of iteration and getting new machineries in, machinery into the, the, the factory which basically made it purer and better than anything else in the market and it was you know, when it, they got that sort of sweetness right, the creaminess right, then it really went from a, a product which people weren't, you know, particularly bothered about to something which everybody was like, right, we need to have chocolate in our daily life sort of thing. And everybody got hooked with it. And chocolate's such a 
unique flavor especially the first time you you eat it it's like wow what, what is this this is, yeah. this is heaven sort of thing so definitely i feel like it's amazing as well because it seems to me from what you're saying like originally the goal was just to like oh let's get people to stop drinking alcohol and let's get them to drink hot chocolate like the goal was never like let's create the best chocolate brand in the uk or in the world like that was probably never your great 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 grandfather's mission it was probably just like let's just try and get people off alcohol and now step by step by step by step it's now created into this incredible brand yeah no absolutely they were it was literally that was their goal they were they did so many amazing things um as a, as a family they were um you know very charitable as it was mentioned but also they uh, did lots of stuff for women's rights they tried to stop a war by buying a newspaper um at the time it was only like a, a right-wing newspaper i think it was the daily mail or the equivalent um 200 years ago or 250 years ago when they, when they did this and they went and there was a the Boer war which was a, a big war in in africa at the time and they bought a newspaper to try and like a left newspaper a bit like the guardian to try and create a voice uh, for you know for people to try and stop wars and stuff like that so amazing things like that like civil um rights and stuff like that as well they did so much stuff with bank holidays the first com- company to really give people bank holidays in the wow. uk so list goes on and on and yeah. it's amazing they, they built this amazing village called Bourneville which was the you know, first big factory outside the, the town centre um, or city centre um, so at the time everybody had the factories in the city centres because that's where people lived and those were the areas where you know, factories were but companies were like right if we look at this and create a new factory where should we do it and so they chose somewhere about five miles outside of Birmingham south of Birmingham a place called Bourneville um, and they create this, you know, amazing factory which was in a garden, um, and it was lots and lots of land around it. And they built houses for the employees. They made sure there's lots of sporting pitches like cricket and football, um, so swimming pools and stuff like that. So they really were thinking ahead of time. I think people like Facebook and Google think of all these perks and stuff like now, but like actually, Cadbury's were thinking about this 150 years ago, and yeah. it's it's crazy. I think a lot of Quaker families did go and set up businesses um, because at the time Quakers were seen as outcasts of society they were sort of seen as a bit weird but they were quite forward thinking but for some reason they were seen as weird and Mm. what that meant was they couldn't get a job in the army they couldn't get a job in the police force or any civil service business uh, uh, government sort of role Um, so that meant they they had to create their own businesses so there's so many amazing uh, you know brands still around uh, who who came up with Quaker families so yeah, it's really quite inspiring what they they did, and yeah, yeah, as I said, it just started off with trying to curb people with with alcohol, and it sort of led to this amazing chocolate business. Amazing! Like, what a role model! I mean, really, really, really great. So, you then started Love Coco in twenty sixteen. Can you explain a bit about why you started that? What was your? Obviously, you were probably hugely influenced by your family, but why did you start Love Coco? Yeah, sure. So, I think the I was working in the city, um, went to uni. Wasn't sure what I was going to do after university. I did a property degree. Uh, did like a master's in that. I thought I was going to go into commercial property and do all that sort of stuff. Um, then when I finished that, it was literally Lehman's Brothers went down. Um, so this is the big financial crisis, and it was like, oh god, there's you know no jobs available, and I had to get some graduate scheme, and there was literally nothing. So I decided to go travelling instead. So I went to Southeast Asia, travelled around there for about six months, and came back and. Managed to get a job at a bank in Birmingham, so I worked for Deutsche Bank in, in Birmingham, which was you know a really good opportunity. Did that for about six months and, and got bored and moved down to London. Uh, did a similar sort of role, um, but you know being in London was a bit more fun and a bit more going on, and it also paid better. Um, and sort of quite enjoyed the role, uh, but it was never that fulfilling. And managed to get promoted, then I moved to another company, then I moved to a, a big pension fund, and started to do more, more sort of trading side of the business and. 
sort of growing up, I thought that was the perfect job. Or you'd see these movies and you know, people in finance who, who were trading and stuff like that. I thought it was going to be the, the dream job. And little did I know, it was literally staring at eight screens, uh, being quite bored most of the day and sort of just working out if we thought the interest rates would go up or down. And as a result, that would have such a big implication on the financial markets. And it's, you know, it was literally, we were just once a month on a Friday, glued to the screens and in America, there'd be a big uh, report, which would basically be how many people have got a job or lost a job over the last month. Um, and from that, they all you know interest rates would change and you know I at the time I thought it was it was gonna be fun but it just it really 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 wasn't and wasn't my passion and I had a French boss who'd come in and he'd be bouncing he'd be like oh you know have you read what's happened in Japan and Australia and all the Asia markets and it was it was I was just like no I'm, no I'm just it's not for me <laughs> no I just didn't have that passion and I, you know always love business um but it's more the sort of small side it's sort of the sort of micro rather than macro economic side so um I wanted to set up a business Help my friend set up a, a property a crowdfunding site at the time, which started quite well. Um, and I sort of got a bit of a bug there and it sort of gave me the confidence really. I think at the time I was like, oh, can I do something on my own? I'm not, not really sure. Um, I you know, had a good job, which paid okay. And you know, all the pension and all that sort of stuff uh, mm. was really good and the benefits. So sort of giving that up to go and set up a business was, you know, my parents weren't, weren't too impressed, but I was just like, you know, well, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I think I quit on my birthday, my 30th birthday. And um, yeah, decided to go full throttle. And it was, there were two options at the time, um, but chocolate was always, I was always passionate about it and really enjoyed it and just really found the market really, really interesting. And as I've sort of learned more about it, about, you know, farmers and where it comes from and stuff like that, it's, it's, it's such an interesting, uh, you know, product to be involved in no definitely and what was your mission behind love coca when you started it where were you aiming to be what was your aim uh in all honesty i had no idea so i think (laughs) i think that was you know it was good and also bad so having worked in finance and it was completely nothing to do with working a small business or setting or something or chocolate or food so it was i just you know i saw a cool packaging i was like, oh this is quite cool should we you know try and make something of it and when we launched, I wasn't sure if I was going to be a grocery brand or it was going to be, um, you know, um, you know, more of a luxury brand. And it was the positioning I didn't think about. I didn't think about anything. I literally just had a logo, had some nice pretty packaging, um, and I started selling it on the website, and that went well for about six months because no one else was really selling at the time. It was looking at people like Bloomer Wild who were doing really, really well. I used to always get that from my uh, like presents from my from my mom or my mm-hmm. sister. And so I sort of really looked at that. And so we, when we launched it, it was chocolate through the letterbox and we'd do like handwritten notes. I'd do everything from my flat. Uh, so my flat became a bit of a warehouse and a bit of a mess, but yeah. it was literally getting the product, sending it out. And it did well for six months, but then I quickly realized I'm going to have to raise a lot of money to grow the, the range of products and really try and, you know, get better products and more products. Or I can try and go into, into retail where I can get uh, more distribution and it won't cost me, you know, huge amounts of money, sort of thing. So I'll have to obviously deliver the product, um, but I don't have to spend much money on advertising. So the idea was approach big retailers. So we went to, I think the first one was Fortnum and Mason, uh, which at the time was which was great. I think we've got Selfridges and people like that. So they're sort of our first iconic um, retailers. Um, and then from that, we've got into distribu- distributors. And even for like the first three or four years, it was also pretty much self-funded and I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and just trying to work out what hell, didn't know how, how to set, run a business really and mm. where we fitted in 
Um, I think after four years, it's finally clicked that we want to be, Love Coke want to be more sort of the luxury side. Um, and, you know, we really want to, you know, focus on how Cadbury started. So when, when Cadbury started, it was all about being the best quality, being very ethical, sustainable. So when we're sourcing our products, it's, it's really important to us that we really know our suppliers. Um, so I regularly go over to Columbia to meet our suppliers out there, which is really, really good to sort of understand, you know, the whole ecosystem and, you know, the, the you know, from growing the, the plants, um, the trees out in, in Columbia to you know, having final product in, in the UK. So, yeah. Amazing. And I believe you took Love Coco to Dragon's Den. How was that experience? Yeah, no, it's crazy, actually. They got in touch, I think, after about two years of running the business. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I've seen people get teared apart. And I had a friend who, who went on it. He's got a, a port scratching business. Um, and they basically, you know, he's a really, really confident guy. He's really switched on, knows his numbers. And it came across on TV that he didn't. And so after speaking to him, I think they're a bit naughty and sort of switched things around. So it sort of made themselves, oh my God, I'm not going to do it. Uh, but then they, they emailed again a year later and the business was going okay. I think we're doing about a quarter of a million pounds after three years. So, was, you know, being self-funded, I thought that was, that was okay at the time. Um, but I just wanted to grow quicker. So I was like, you know what, you only live once why not give it a go like and I, I still wasn't sure so it was yeah it was lots of umming and ahhing and then finally you, you basically have to go for a, a small little interview and they have put a camera and you do a 30 second pitch or something and I didn't do any prep for that and just winged it and it seemed to go quite well and they're like oh can you come on in three weeks I was like absolutely not I, I need a lot more time to prepare <laughs> for this I do not like presenting particularly and definitely not on national you know tv with yeah. you know, just 50 people in the room and it's quite scary so I was like, right, yeah, I'll do it, but give us two months sort of thing. So for two months, I just practice, practice, practice. Um, and then it's filmed up in, in Manchester. So you go up in the, the evening before, and they sort of put you up in a hotel. I think the wake-up call was 5 a.m., so I'm not very good in the morning either. So I was like, oh, my God, I've got no sleep. And I think the night before, I, I was at Liverpool University, and the night before um, is in Manchester. So um, we used to come over quite a bit from Liverpool to Manchester for nights out and stuff like that. And a few, mm. a few friends in Manchester, and I went to this... So this Chinese place I used to always remember we used to go after a night out and I used to remember it being amazing so I went there uh, little did I know it was the most salty food in the world so I just literally could not sleep I think oh I was obviously a bit gosh. nervous I had a few beers and I was just my throat was just oh it was a horrible sort of thing so didn't sleep at all got up at 5am um, and then you go and sort of put all your stuff out on the table and they really sort of try and push you and I was quite nervous so I was just like that's fine sort of thing and we did that for about an hour and I was like oh come on please then yeah, let's, yeah. let's get on with it and then you're with five, six people in sort of the back room and you, you don't know when you're going to go on and they don't have a schedule. And you're like, surely you've got a schedule. Can you just tell me? Because if we're not going to be on last, I'm going to go out and just stretch my legs and go to a restaurant and get some food and stuff like that. But you're literally in there um, with other people and uh, it's it's crazy. You literally, I was there for 12 hours until I got on. So it was 5 a.m. Oh my gosh, that's so intense. So intense. Um, and the coffee was the worst coffee ever, but I was just nervous. So I kept drinking, drinking. So I was just, I was just in a state, um, but I just kept practicing, practicing. And there's like a room, there's a mirror and you could practice it. And I was got it to really perfect condition. And then I had this runner with me who's who looking after me. and kept practicing for it was perfect um, and then I knew I was going to be last on um, so I had like about an hour uh, to sort of really focus uh, and then about two minutes before they sort of tap you like right we need to get you in the get you in the lift uh, and I was like oh goodness um, and yeah it's, it's I completely forgot everything it's like I oh, yeah no. yeah I was like can I practice one more time she's like yeah sure sure you've been nailing it for the last 12 hours yeah 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 <laughs> and I just went mine back I was like I can't remember my company's name my name I was like what have I done um, and then she's like oh just go and get grab a water and it'll be 10 minutes grab the water and she's like actually we need you in there now and I was like oh my god so I was in this 
I was in the lift. I'm not religious, uh, particularly, uh, but I did say a little prayer in the yeah. of the lift. I was like, oh my God. Uh, and then you could hear the, all the dragons, the, the sort of getting the makeup done and getting prepared and chatting away. Um, and then just saw the, remember seeing the doors open. It's the most surreal thing in the world. So I used to love Dragon's Den and sort of watched it all the time. And to sort of go on there was just so surreal to see like Peter, Peter Jones and Deborah Mead and, and all the new dragons as well. And it was, yeah, it was crazy. And you sort of go, the little X marks the spot on where you go and stand on. And I think I had my head down because I was just like, just bricking it basically. And then yeah. suddenly I looked up I saw them and then luckily they all smiled and I think it's made such a difference. I mean, small communication like that, if they were, because they've been there for 12 hours as well, they must be bored. And some of the guys who went before me, you know, questionable businesses and right. yeah, people didn't know what gross margin was and stuff like that. So it was, you know, they've been there for a while and they didn't need to smile and be nice, but they were really sort of, you could feel they wanted you to do well and succeed. And I think on TV, sometimes they, you know, edit it to make it that, you know, they don't want you to succeed, but they were all generally really nice and all the questions were nice. I remember I've watched it so many times. So I was just, well, the first question, I can't remember what it was, but I literally just said what I wanted to do and just like did all my finance. And she, I think Deborah said, oh, you've watched this before. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm getting this out before you yeah, try, yeah, yeah. try and trick me sort of thing. <laughs> and um, yeah, the pitch went okay. It wasn't my best pitch in the world, but I, I luckily remembered most of it. I think I missed out a paragraph or two, but gave myself probably six, seven out of 10, which should have definitely taken five minutes before. I can, yeah. can bloody remember a thing. But yeah, amazing experience. I think it's, such a good thing I you know I don't like presenting or I didn't used to anyway and it's you know going out your comfort zone and it's such so far out of my comfort zone you know probably the biggest thing ever for me but since I've done that and talks at John Lewis uh, you know different um, supermarkets and stuff like that talk to buyers and stuff like that and present in front of like lots of people um, so yeah, it's definitely something I'm glad I, I did yeah amazing it does seem like the most incredible experience but also so nerve-wracking I think for me, if I was to ever go, I'd be so nervous about the numbers. Like numbers just don't really stick in my head, and I'm yeah. like, oh, I feel like I'd be so caught out. Um, oh, you smash it, and just you just, just need to what I do, and just just blag it anyway, because they, they yeah. don't you know, they don't know what the numbers are anyway. So it's no, literally it's confidence, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. So once you're confident, they're like, well, yeah, they must know it sort of thing. So I'm yeah. sure you smash it. God, so scary. So then you started Hip, and Hip has come about well in 2021, I believe you started yeah. Hip. So why did you start hip and why did you start another chocolate brand and not a brand or a sub brand within love coco yeah really good question so i think the reason was we saw a gap in the, in the market um i drink a lot of oat milk um i'm not vegan I'm, but you know i'm flexitarian but i've always you know stuff like that like I, I can cut out and i think the you know alternatives like oat milk is just as good or actually i think it's a lot better now i would mm -hmm. like to drink milk anymore um everybody in the office started to ask for it so i well, I think we're team six. I used to always do like a Tesco run um, once a week, sort of or twice a week, sort of thing. And when I got the milk and coffee and stuff like that for the team, and everybody just asked for Oatly. So I was like, well, you know, you know, everybody's starting to, to change. Uh, consumer tastes are changing. And I looked at the vegan chocolate market, and obviously, you can get dark chocolate, which is which is great. It's quite bitter, but it, you know, I love dark chocolate. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, there's a lot of people who don't, and you know, milk chocolate is still by far the, the biggest seller. Um, I think four out of five people prefer milk chocolate over a dark chocolate. Mm -hmm. And we were like, well, you know, there's not much on the market. Was, there's stuff which had coconut milk in, which is sort of really, really overpowering. And it's, for me, it's, I love coconut, but in chocolate, not sure. Mm. Um, there's rice milk, which again, it just doesn't taste, it's just super sweet. And it's, it just doesn't, for me, it doesn't work. And if you look at the Oatly's sales versus uh, rice milk sales, for example, Oatly's growing like massively and rice milk is massively declining. Same with every, every plant-based um, milk. 
and also the sustainability around oat is, is, is amazing. So it just made sense to, to make an oat milk chocolate bar and sort of looked around the world. No one was doing it. I think there's a small manufacturer out in Finland who, who were doing it, uh, who I, I met at a trade show actually, and we ordered some of their chocolate and it was it wasn't great. Um, no offense to them. I don't, I'm not sure they're going, still going, but they were really great guys. They did some great dark chocolate, but the oat one wasn't great. And it was like, well, we surely can do better than this. And, you know, let's, let's do it. So we spent about 12 months doing R&D. Could have been quicker, but COVID sort of happened at the same time, so yeah. couldn't, couldn't fly out to, to Colombia to do some of that R and D. Um, and we, you know, samples came back, and the first ones weren't great. Second ones weren't great. I think about by the sixth or seventh one, it was oh, actually this is this is alright. This is, and then like the eighth one, it's like wow, this is actually this actually tastes like normal chocolate, and it I does. can't tell can't tell the difference. Um, and yeah, it was. I guess it was. That was how it how it started. And the, I guess the reason behind having it as a separate brand was um, Love Coca is more luxury. You know, it's it's in like John Lewis. We do a lot of online stuff. We do lots of um, corporate gifting. We really want to be competing with Hotel Chocolat with, with that brand. Um, and I think before Hotel Chocolat, there was a, you know, Thornton's Chocolate, which used to have two hundred shops. Many people probably don't know that, but yeah, they used to have. They used to be the big chocolate um, sort of shop and player at the time in terms of premium chocolate. And then suddenly Hotel Chocolat came along and you know, did a way better job. Um, and you know, Thornton's were in Tesco's and their, their product was selling for half the prices in the shop. And we, we realized that if we you know, love Coca, we want to have stores and we are working on that at the moment and we'll be launching next year, it was maybe this year, we've just done a rebrand for Love Coca, so we just really want to nail that and it looks amazing. But let's just focus on one thing. Lots of times we do way too much and stuff doesn't get done as well as it should be. So we wanted to keep that brand equity in Love Coco and really wanted a, a brand which was focused on plant-based and sort of, you know, the tone of voice and the brand and everything, you know, really appealed to, you know, to vegans, plant-based people, as well as um, people who just want to reduce their, their dairy intake. So mm. um, it made sense to, to separate it. And I came up with the name HIP. Um, and then I realized that HIP stand, could stand for happiness in plants. And I was like, wow, this, this makes sense. Because actually at the time we were toying with just having a cheaper brand for a supermarket. And it's like, you know, should we do it? Should we not? And then I was like, you know, the bigger market is definitely this, this vegan you know, tr- trend at the time. And it just, and then when I, when I realized it stood for happiness and plants, I was like, this is, this is a sign. Let's, let's, let's go yeah. for it. And um, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Cause I guess a brand is like a person in a way, like it's got a personality. So when I was like, kind of like doing my research into Love Coco and Hip, I was like, well, why wouldn't you just do an oat Love Coco? But actually when you think about it, you know, Love Coco is definitely a certain person, certain personality, more premium, more, bit fancier for occasions all of that whereas hip is definitely more hip and it's for maybe a younger market or maybe for those who are yeah plant-based wanting to cut back flexitarian so when you think about it they're actually very different people um so that makes a lot of sense but i'm not just saying this it honestly is like the best vegan chocolate (laughs) on the market so don't like share your secrets but why and how is it so good like why is hip but in my opinion the best chocolate vegan chocolate on the market Oh, thanks. That's very, very kind of you. And um, yeah, I, th- I think it's just using the, the best quality ingredients. So um, we use we source our, our chocolate from Colombia, um, whereas most people get from from Africa. I think the, the great thing about Colombia is they have basically with coca. There's the, the three different varieties, and we use um, there's two which are more sort of South America, and there's one uh, variety which is more Africa. And we think the, the ones in South Africa, South, not South Africa, South America is, is is tastier and better and better quality. It's regarded as in the best sort of ten percent of, of of cocoa in the world. So we wanted to use that. Um, and also the reason behind working with Columbia is that our supplier out there they do a lot of amazing work with charities and you know creating hospitals and schools and stuff like that. 
Um, you know, cocoa is uh, something that is, is growing in rural areas. In a lot of part of the world, people are moving from rural areas to, to cities um, and sort of, you know, no one wants to do that. So uh, no one wants to do farming and there's not many you know, schools there and stuff like that. So our supplier is, is just became B Corp, we became B Corp as well, but they're doing so much amazing work out there. Um, and then they also, you know, make an amazing chocolate. Um, so it was, you know, I think it all starts with ingredients um, mm. and then it's just iterating it and, you know, changing it. We, we make it more like a Swiss chocolate, so it's a bit, bit creamier. Um, there's lots of technical stuff we could go into which would be a bit boring but it's basically they can make the microns which is the how small the particles are and that has an effect on your um the way you you eat it and your mouthfeel and stuff like that so we've gone for a we we basically process it for longer in a conch it's called uh which makes it smaller particles which makes it more like a swiss chocolate um so it's swiss chocolate's creamier basically so um we've used that technique with a plant base which I think not many other people are using, so I'm putting no. away my, my secrets there. But. <laughs> no, but it's so <laughs> true. Not. I think, yeah, plant-based chocolate hasn't got that creaminess that hips got. Like it really, you there's no compromise when you have hip. Like there really, really isn't. And I think I um, gave my parents a hip Easter egg, and I think oh. they thought, thanks a lot. Like where's you know where's my Cadbury or whatever. Yeah. Um, and they had it and they were like, wow, this is actually incredible. Like you couldn't even tell. And I was like, I know it really is. It really is that good. Um, so you've mentioned a lot about kind of ethics and you kind of mentioned how like your great, great, great grandfather was very ethical and like, you know, he really looked after his employees and like ethics was a massive part, like, part for him. And it seems like it's really followed through and is a huge part for you and in what you've done. So do you think he's influenced you in terms of the ethics and like, how what what else what else have you done with hip and love coco to make it so ethical yeah good question so it's yeah i think ethics setting up and reading about my family history i I didn't want to just go and set up a chocolate bar try and put my name on it try and sell it because i've got a a cool past i think you know i did the first person i spoke to in terms of manufacturers like just just buy the cheapest chocolate put your name on and try and market it i was like no this is just doesn't work for me and I read more about the industry and sort of the problems and it was just like the ethics behind it. There's a huge issue, especially from chocolate, which is sourced from Africa. Um, you know, there's a lot of children who are exploited out there. Um, the reason behind it is generally cocoa is is, is, uh, is farmed by um, families. Um, they have a couple of hectares um, up to farm, um, which is a little bit too much for, for one person or two people to do. So um, they need help and a lot of times they can't get help or they can't afford to pay for the help to, to harvest their, their trees and, and the cocoa and the beans and stuff like that so what typically happen is that because they're not getting paid enough if, if they got paid enough um, everything would be fine but because they're not it's they can't pay for this help so they they basically get their children to help and you know I the first day I used to help with, with uh, like in the, in the garden I used to have a sit on lawn mower I think and I used to love it and you'll think I got five pound an hour or something so yeah. um, you know my parents definitely um got me to help with stuff but you know I got paid and I did, didn't didn't not go to school sort of thing so um whereas you know um these guys you know, these children are, are not going to school and they're not having the same education the chances in life um and I think it's sort of reading about that I just found it was, you know, really heartbreaking and it just requires people to spend, spend a bit more money on, on chocolate you see you go to some supermarkets and you see a chocolate bar for a pound for 100 grams I'm like how is that even possible that's you know that's just madness how who are we exploiting and yeah, it's just really sad that, you know, 80% of cocoa is grown in, in, in Ivory Coast, in, in Africa. Um, and, you know, what happens is all the beans are shipped, which is the cheapest part of the, the product. So rather than engineering or putting any money back into the, the local economy, into the local country, they'll basically take the bean, bring it over to uh, Europe. It'll get manufactured there and sort of processed. And 
means there's lots of job creations there and they're adding lots of value which you know goes into the shareholders pockets and stuff like that rather than you know these these farmers um, and as a result you know people are getting exploited so so reading about this I find really you know interesting and you know quite sad really what's happening and the other thing is actually deforestation which you know, a lot of people won't realize as well so a lot of uh, rainforest especially in Africa is getting cut down to, to plant cocoa trees um, so we've got these beautiful forests uh, which uh, store lots of carbon and uh, and also have so you know from you know sustainability carbon you know really important that these places aren't chopped down as well as all the the local uh, wildlife and ecosystem w- within that there's you know lots and lots of um, you know species going extinct because of people are cutting down trees to plant cocoa trees to harvest them um, which is really bad so what we did was plant a tree for every chocolate bar we sold full of cocoa so we've actually planted I think it's about 1.7 million 1.8 million trees wow. now uh, in Africa which is amazing um, I'm so really really proud about that and quite often I forget about that now it's sort of just you know yeah. we were one of the people who did that before now you see all sorts of people offering it which is which is great um, so we sort of I think yeah I think it's great that people are doing it so it shows mm. that they're sort of following in you know like fast footsteps we one of the first people to do it I think it's really important that we give back to the the environment because yeah cocoa is you know chocolate is quite bad for the environment in terms of the carbon footprint um, and the great thing about hip actually because it uses um, uh, non-dairy milk it's, it has about 50% less carbon than a a dairy product so god that is all amazing like again lots of people wouldn't even know any of that like deforestation chocolate and carbon like those aren't things that you normally would think about and another thing i love which you guys do is the lack of plastic in your packaging i mean we touched on it before but all your hip and probably love, love cocoa uh, chocolate as well has no packaging uh, plastic in the packaging which is amazing and i think it is amazing what these brands are doing nowadays like like yourself i think you know as consumers we don't even think twice about it we're like oh that's great but actually that's so much that goes into creating a chocolate bar without any plastic in the packaging have you guys found that a bit of a challenge um and why did you decide to do it yeah for our bars we use something called nature flex so it's got very similar properties so it's basically made of, uh, out of wood pulp and they turn it into a, a film which can wrap the product and basically it gets flow wrapped so it's um, sealed and it's all safe and all that good stuff um, but yeah, you can compost it. So rather than you know um, recycling, or rather than it being plastic, where excuse me, you, you can't recycle it, um, you can put that in your compost bin at home, and it will it will go within eight weeks, to eight to ten weeks, I think it is. So it's, it's amazing. It's, yeah, it's amazing. The, the, I think the only issue is, and it's, it is quite a big issue, is that a lot of people don't understand that, or they'll just be lazy and won't put it in the right bin, um, and that you know does have a knock-on effect, and it does mean that some of the plastic, if that goes in the plastic bin, then it can have knock-on effects on, on the recycling there. So it's. I think we're doing the right thing, um, but it's, it's you know, constantly looking at it and speaking to people in the industry and speaking to customers and trying to understand what they want. Um, but I think it's a you know, step in the right direction. Listening to your podcast every week with the guys from Parlour, it's, it's quite scary. I can't believe plastic, um, uh, 500 years for the, the toothpaste. It's, oh, it's, it's crazy. Oh. It really is scary. But no, I think ultimately all you can do is your best. And if consumers aren't following in your footsteps, and sadly, you know, you can't do much about that. But yeah, I think it's it's incredible. So touching a little bit on the plant-based industry, I know at the moment you're hearing lots of things about plant-based proteins are kind of struggling, the alternative market's struggling, you know, people are kind of watching their money at the moment, maybe they aren't choosing plant-based options as much as they would be a few years ago. How's the plant-based industry from your perspective in the confectionery world at the moment, how are you finding that? We're seeing it is growing still, so I think we probably compare ourselves more to like an Oatly or a you know oat-based um, or a plant-based drink, should I say? Um, yeah, I do see the. I think with the vegan meats, I think a lot of them 
you know, there's a lot of, well, listening to podcasts again, you've had some people on and, you know, it does have quite a lot of ingredients in it to scare people. And I think mm-hmm. I once saw an Instagram post which had dog food versus, um, uh, you know, plant-based meat. And it was, you know, I think it had more ingredients on the plant-based meat. And I think that stuff like that, there's a lot of people trying to scaremonger, uh, which I think is, is wrong. I think plant-based meats are still, you know, you know, some of them are good, some of them are better than others, obviously. The ones with few ingredients that I prefer. Um, but yeah, I think that sort of, people are, you know, because they think of that as, you know, not as pure and as, as clean. Uh, I think that's definitely a bit of a knock-on effect. But for us, mm. it's more like an, uh, you know, oat-based drink uh, alternative. So we, we're not seeing um, a huge impact on, on ours. And actually, we're, we're growing. We're, we're in Sainsbury's and that's been growing steadily over the last year, which is really great to see. So, mm. um, but yeah, it's, it is quite interesting. You know, every time I open the grocer or the newspapers, there's someone struggling in, in that um, market. And I think for, for me as a customer, uh, like a beat if I want to, eat vegan products I always look at the back and sort of try and work out what's on the you know what's in the ingredients and with us we literally just use an oat powder so rather than using milk we literally just use an oat powder um, so it's an oat powder milk so it's a dehydrated oat milk um, so it's really pure really simple it's really really clean I, I think that's what consumers want they want those clean products um, I think you had the the guys on from the the bean company um, mm. and that's just a great example of you know a vegan product which is super tasty which is not over processed and I think that's what we're trying to do with, with our product and I think those cleaner products are going to be the ones which are going to grow and maybe some of the over-processed ones which have got lots of competitors might find it a little bit harder but there'll probably be one or two winners and the rest of them will, will, will you know unfortunately probably die. Yeah I completely agree it's so true like realistically you know hip versus let's say cavalry it is literally the milk which is probably the main difference so it's not much of it like we say there's no compromise there whereas a lot of the plant-based proteins you're right there are like I don't know 25 to 30 ingredients and you're not really too sure what's in it whereas i'm sure if you turn over hit packaging you'll probably roughly know understand all those ingredients so it's yeah. not a bad swap um but it's an interesting time for the market definitely and you're right i think as with any trend loads of brands come out and ultimately it's it's survival of the fittest and i mean i'm sure you've seen that with a lot of different chocolate brands yeah. it ultimately there's only a few that will be able to stand the test of time and that's just kind of part of life so when people will say to me oh you know like plant-based is dying out it's like no no no. it's definitely not going anywhere like it's just becoming more normal but with that some brands won't be able to make it and some brands will I think it's just yeah I think the cost of living is probably having an impact as well I think everybody is is looking at what they're spending in supermarkets you you go there now it's like double the cost as like a year ago sort of thing so I think people are not experimenting as much with, with new things so um, you know the way we try and get around that is lots of promotions so we, we do you know especially for first year we're promoting quite heavily every other month pretty much um, and the reason behind that we just want to get people to try it and promotions is, is the best way to get people to try something for the first time um, so we've been having a huge focus on that we hit do lots and lots of sampling campaigns again because it's a, a new product and it's you know three quid two pound sixty uh, five um, in, in Sainsbury's but you know three quid most other places you know, it's still quite expensive products and if people haven't tried it, then are they really going to want to spend three quid of their hard-earned cash on, on a chocolate bar, which might not to be their taste. So we're trying to do lots and lots of sampling campaigns so that most of our marketing at the moment is going into, um, you know, in-store where we can you know, do promotions or do stuff with Sainsbury's or, you know, you know, handing out samples or going in sample boxes and really try and target people who are plant-based um, or vegan who, who are probably most likely to pick up the product, um, especially with this cost of living where people are, as I said, sort of watching what they're spending, it's, yeah, it's tough out there for people. Yeah, no, definitely. I think also with something like chocolate, it is brand loyalty. Like once you have a brand that you love, 
chocolate is a treat and so you'll be loyal to that brand because you're like oh I know I'm gonna love it I know it I'm gonna like it you don't want to maybe take a risk on like something that you're treating yourself with so that makes a lot of sense to kind of get sampling get it in people's hands and I'm that can definitely say once you get a hip in someone's hands they're not gonna want to <laughs> not have that again it's it's so so good um so what is next for hip and love cocoa like where do you see them both in the future what's coming up if you can share anything yeah where what's coming up for you guys so for hip we are going to be looking at launching of a plant-based milks um as well as, well as potentially dark chocolate um you know, our focus is still on the oat milks i think that's going really well so we're trying to get more supermarket listings at the moment we've got some really good encouraging discussions going on at the moment uh, i'm really looking to make that you know the number one plant-based chocolate you know without any compromise and you know i think you mentioned a few times no compromise was actually our, our sort of slogan we've been working on i think when we, we mean that it's no compromise on, on taste and i think a lot of plant-based alternatives there are you do have to compromise on taste uh, unfortunately so we want to be seen as that company you don't have to compromise on taste as well as the people who, who work within the cocoa industry as well as people of the, the planet uh, but yeah be really be focused on being plant-based uh, better for the environment um, less co2 and all that good stuff um, so just continue to grow uh, and then for love cocoa we're just about to do a rebrand um, so Again, when we started, we've mentioned it before, it was, I wasn't really sure you know, where we were in the market, but now we sort of resell ourselves as a sort of luxury premium player. So we've just completely redone the, the logo and all the branding and, and all the packaging. It looks looks really, really great. It's quite a process. I think we started it about 12 months ago and it was, yeah, we worked with this designer and uh, as well as internally and it's uh, the first three months is, oh my goodness, this just, just not going anywhere. It doesn't look good. And suddenly something just clicked and it's, yeah, well, luckily, because I was like, oh, you know, we're not going to have to stop it in, in a minute sort of thing, but it looks amazing. So we're, we're launching that at the end of, of August. Um, and then we'll be looking to, to develop store concepts. Um, so we want to have a store where you can go in and learn about chocolate. You can sample the product, do lots of events in there. Um, so we've we've been you know the last six months have been looking at lots of different locations. Um, just the rent is still so expensive in London to yeah. to uh, to make it to work. But I think we found a couple of locations we're sort of set on. So over the next couple of months we're really going to sort of try and nail down at one location and hopefully launch a store next year uh, which is yeah, super exciting a little bit nervous as well because it's if you get it wrong it can be quite an expensive mistake yeah, um, yeah. but yeah no I think it's super super exciting time for, for the brand we've just got a B Corp as well and amazing. it's um, just trying to go in the right direction yeah creating an experience like that is really cool and I think again linking back to Cadbury like you know the Cadbury world and Cadbury factory like they always were really good at creating that kind of experience and like you you felt really part of the family which I guess you're kind of trying to recreate with with Love Coco and having an in-store experience. I think that would be really, really cool. And how do you balance the two? How do you find personally balancing <laughs> hip and Love Coco? How do you how do you do that? Yeah, it's really hard actually, I'm not gonna lie. It's, yeah, it's, I can imagine. Yeah, it's hard and you, we've got investors now and they're like, oh, you, you know, how are you spending your time on each? And you know, I try and explain and it's, it is really hard. I try and block out hours, a couple of hours a day for each brand and then it was whatever comes up sort of thing or what's more priority. So it is, it's tough and it's also the team. We've got the sales team, they they work on either brand, but there is when people are sick or, you know, there's lots of cross selling as well, which is which is great for our brand actually, because they it's both chocolate and mm. a lot of stores will, will carry both. So there's a bit of cross selling as well, but we generally try and separate the, the sales team. 
the marketing team do a bit of both and the ops team as well do a bit of both um so it's really trying to you know start the week it's trying to work out goals and very much into sort of time blocking and you know setting goals at the start of of the week um you know i think it's so important if you can write down three goals every day um since i started doing that i just think productivity level really really increase uh, and before i go i'll sort of tick off um there's lots of uh, info out there on, on you know how best to organize your day and stuff like that and sort of coaching and stuff like that so i've I've re- re- read a lot about that to try and work out how I could be more productive, and it's it's still really hard though. It's, it, I can have these three goals, but at the end of the day, it's it's whatever comes whatever comes up is is I'll, I'll jump on. It's it's hard basically. It's a, it's a process. I mean, I don't think anyone's nailed it, but I think you're doing a great job because both brands seem to be doing amazingly. Um, so, what is your personal diet like? You mentioned that you know you've cut out dairy and you're having oat milk is that your only kind of cutback or are you more flexitarian where's your current diet at the moment yeah i'm more flexitarian we don't eat meat at home um but when i'm out um or abroad i I find it quite hard still so it's it's trying to cut down i'm i'm cutting down because i I love animals and also you know the planet and stuff like that the carbon impact um but i do find it quite hard to sort of go that final step um so i'm sort of very much flexitarian but sort of just trying to be really conscious about what i what i eat but dairy and stuff like that when there's you know great alternative where you can go anywhere in the world and get like a a dairy-free coffee uh stuff like that i I, you know i'm very much for um but some of the meats that i do find hard um uh, to, to be completely honest but it's it's a process and before i think when i was growing up i just just ate meat i was just so i just didn't eat any vegetables i was like i just want meat and i remember yeah it just was a child it was just oh yeah morning it'd be bacon sausages and you know just be just meat sort of thing with a bit of bread so yeah. um it's it's a process i think it is a process and at least you're conscious about it all i think that's that's half the battle i think restaurants are doing a really good job with offering more kind of plant-based alternatives but i do being plant-based myself sometimes go to restaurants and think oh like the non-plant-based options sound a lot better right now than the plant-based options so i think it makes sense when when you go out you probably opt for non-plant-based because i think it's not quite there yet but again it's a process that we're all on so i think it will get there i think it's when you you're abroad as well as, as well it's like mm. you really have to plan your holidays around it i mean you must struggle with, yeah, with that side it of it really is. is hard sometimes sometimes you go to a restaurant and you know, i'm like oh i'm plant-based they're like okay chips and salad and you're like oh <laughs> i really don't want that like surely there's something else that you can offer me but yeah it'll get there slowly slowly so another tradition on the podcast is we always finish with the same question, which is what would your last meal be? Starter, main course, dessert, last meal, what would it be? I know this question is coming because I've listened to the podcast a few times and I've been thinking about this for quite some time. I, st- I still can't really nail it to be <laughs> honest. Hard. But um, I love sushi, so maybe can I, can I have that as a starter? Yeah, that's a great starter. Um, so yeah, I'd have like a big platter of sushi. Um, and then I think for main course, love going to like uh, Southeast Asia, so like places like Thailand or Vietnam and just all the food out there so fragrant you can have it with meat or you know normally when i'm out there i sort of go plant-based because you know, some of the meats are questionable um and you just because of all the flavors you really don't need it so i'd probably go for a couple of different dishes i'd probably be quite greedy and have like a curry and some noodles and a few other things yeah um and then think for dessert i love um well, i love ice cream um but i probably would go for um oh, sticky rice mango Do you know the, oh yeah, yeah really you're yeah. sticking on the asian theme yeah. i love it yeah i think so and then i think you're yeah i think that would go for that but it's such a tricky question i yeah, think it's i've a hard changed one. my mind about three times and i was 
listen to the podcast with Jeremy and it talked oh, about yeah. Black Cod, which sounds pretty pretty nice as yeah. well. We've had that once or twice. So <laughs> No, it's it is a tough one. But no, you're really sticking to the Thai kind of Japanese Thai theme, which is great. I mean, you mentioned ice cream and do we think there could be a hip ice cream? I mean, as a consumer I am I would be over the moon if there was a hip ice cream <laughs> in the future. So maybe maybe Yeah, maybe. we we looked at it. Um but then we were like, how are we going to, you know, transporting chocolate's hard enough because it melts during transportation, oh, but God, to, yeah. to do to do ice cream, uh, you know, if something goes wrong, just everything being ruined, it's just another thing we're like, uh, maybe yeah. in the future, but yeah, I think it's, you know, I love ice cream, so, you know, absolutely would love to, to do that some Yeah, stage. distribution is, is a challenge. James, thank you so much for coming on. I've loved talking about all things hip and love cocoa. I love what you're doing. I love the link between Cadbury and what you're doing. I think it's amazing. And it's a great story, great brand. Um, So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, it's great. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed hearing about the behind the scenes of both Cadbury, hip and love cocoa. As always, please continue to support this podcast by sharing it to friends and family and by pressing the follow and subscribe button wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much again and see you next week. (music) 